Jim is kind of a doomsday kind of guy based on his films, you know. It's all about the end of the world and hell and all that stuff. He does not use the word hope, ever. He's got a t-shirt that says, hope is not a strategy. And we were walking along the beach about two months after we went plant-based, and he said, for the first time in my life, I have hope. I almost fell into the surf, and I turned to him, and he said, the more people we can get to go plant-based, the more we can move the needle on climate change. And it was in that moment that I knew there was something I could do in the world to spread that message. That's environmentalist Susie Cameron, and this is episode 150 of The Proof Podcast. Hey, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. I hope you've been keeping well. Real pleasure to be here with you again. For those who are joining us for the very first time, I'm Simon Hill host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Today's episode is rather timely with the new International Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC report, having been published in the past week. Rather than getting into the details of that now, let's hear from today's guest, environmentalist Susie Cameron, and then, if interested, join me on the other side for a short debrief. Sound like a plan? Okay, great. Here we go. This is Susie Cameron. I'll catch you on the other side. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, 
and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. When I was 34 years old, I was actually doing a film called Last Stand at Sabre River with Tom Selleck. And I knew that I wanted to get a job right away after that. And I just kept calling my manager every day. And I was like, I get me another job. I need another job. And I finished the film. And I was in the Albuquerque airport. And I got a call on the white courtesy phone, which I don't even think the white courtesy phones exist anymore. But they used to have announcements over the loudspeaker, you know. And I heard Susie Amos pick up the white courtesy phone. And I picked it up. And she said, okay, when you get back to L.A., just drop your bags. You've got a meeting tonight at 7 p.m. with James Cameron. And I was like, and who's that again? And she said, oh, well, he did the Terminators and he did uh, Aliens. And I was like, oh, I love Aliens and, and The Abyss. And I hadn't even seen the Terminator movies. So I dropped myself off and I went to meet this guy, James Cameron. And I had this idea that for some reason, I just had a whole another picture in my mind of, you know, somebody that was older with dark hair and, you know, kind of, I don't know, schlubby, I guess. I don't know what word to use. But I was sitting on the, the floor with the uh, casting agent, and we were looking through this big, beautiful book about Titanic, and she was telling me about this movie that they were going to be doing on the Titanic. And this tall, willowy guy comes bouncing into the room and telling me that he was sorry that he was late, but they had been filming the opening scenes for Titanic where you pan across the bottom and the doll's face is there. And anyway, he had a ring around his face from his mask. And typically a meeting like that would have taken 20 minutes. And an hour and 45 minutes later, he kind of said to me, well, I guess we should talk about the movie. And... By the way, here's the script, and it was the fattest script I'd ever seen. I think it was like 150 pages or something. And he said, you're going to have to read this tonight because you're going to have to let me know tomorrow because you leave in 48 hours. So anyway, I didn't, you know, people ask me all the time, was it love at first sight? It was like, no, but boy, was he a cool guy. Well, we didn't talk about the movie at all until the last, you know, three and a half minutes. And I didn't even read the script before I called my manager and I called her up and I said, is there any reason why I shouldn't do this? And she said, no, Suze, it'll be fun. It'll, you know, it's two and a half weeks and it's an amazing cast and you'll be in Nova Scotia and go for it. So, you know, there I was in it. We were incredibly professional. I didn't tip my hand that I thought he was really cool until I was wrapped and he didn't tip his hand either. Now, there was a moment, probably about 
four or five days before we wrapped. And he was sitting in for Gloria Stewart, who was the old woman who played Old Rose. And she and I had become very, very, very dear friends. And we continued our friendship, even though she was 51 years older than me, until she died at 100. So I met her when she was 86. She would say to me on the set, she was like, I don't know, Susie. I think if there was a producer-director around, you know, that was really interesting— I don't know, Susie, I might make a move if I were you. And I'm like, Gloria, first of all, I don't roll that way, you know, but she kept, she was the matchmaker. But there was a moment when we were doing a scene where she starts talking about Jack's hands and how Jack had these hands of an artist, but they were roughened by work. Well, he was reading those lines off camera and we were reacting to it as the group. And there was a moment when I was like, oh my gosh, he has hands like that. I don't think he was writing about his own hands. It was from that moment on, I was like, okay, I've got to keep my hands or my eyes off of his hands. <laughs> and so sparks were starting to fly, but we were in very, very professional. And it wasn't until the morning that we wrapped that he asked me out on a date. That's where it all began. And when we really decided that, you know, we were going to, it was a clearly obvious that we were going to be together, I kind of said to him, look, I know what it's like to have a relationship in the business. And I said, one of us is going to have to quit working. And something tells me it's not going to be you. And, oh, by the way, I want to have a bunch of kids. So I quit. I quit cold turkey. And I missed being on the set, but I didn't miss. I think the part that I really had a hard time with within the business was going out to all of the events and playing that game because it's not who I am. And interestingly enough, I'm finding myself back in the public eye, but now I have a message, a real purpose. And all those years, everything from being in Oklahoma and dancing ballet to gymnastics to riding a horse to being a model and learning how to move in that way to being an actress and learning how to use my voice and speak in public and all of those things. I feel like all of those things have prepared me for this moment. We had watched our two older kids go through different educational systems, and I watched their spirits being squashed. I watched them having tummy aches and tears, and I hated school. I was a really good student, but I hated it. I was painfully shy. I went to school probably 95% of the time with a tummy ache because I was so anxious and I hated it. <laughs> there was so much pressure and, and we were meant to be somebody, you know, fit into a box that very few people could actually fit into. You know, as I started looking around for schools for our little girl that what they were feeding them, no one was talking about the environment with them. They were all expected to kind of live in this little box. Nobody was teaching any kind of self-efficacy. And I just said to Jim one night, I just said, you know, I can't put our baby in any of these schools. And, you know, maybe we homeschool her. But she was already very much sort of an introvert. And we just thought it was going to be too isolated. So I said, well, why don't I just get a couple of families together because there are a cluster of them at the preschool 
and we'll just start a little homeschool kind of thing. And, you know, with my sister, I called her up and I said, look, I really want to start this school. And she said, no. She had already started one in Wichita, Kansas, an early childhood program, and it was an amazing program. And I kept begging her and begging her. And I, I, I finally won out because I'm the persistent older sister. And she started commuting out here. And we founded Muse together. And it's based on the Reggio Emilia. We pulled from a lot of different pedagogies, certainly Waldorf and Reggio. And then we added in 21st century learning with technology and hardcore academics. And we started 13 years ago with 11 kids. But we had an opportunity through this high school. They ended up inheriting a campus right here in Malibu, and they could only fill up half of it. So they had this one room. It was like this little one-room area with an adjoining kitchen and a yard big enough for them to play and also put in a garden. We got that campus about three weeks before we opened. So all of a sudden, we had a campus, we had kids, we had a school, and we were building that jet while we were flying Mach 10. And so today we have, we start at two years old and we go all the way through high school. We've got two campuses and have 220 plus kids. And we just made an announcement last week that we are opening Muse Global Schools. So we've had two graduating classes so far and 100% of our students, of our graduating students, have been able to get into the college of their choice. So they've gone off to NYU and Berkeley and Hawaii and Pitzer and et cetera, et cetera. But it's been a journey. Thank God we have persistence because there were many, many times in May of our first year, I cried to Jim and I said, I, I can't do this. I, it's too hard. <laughs> and he kind of gave me a pep talk and he said, he said, no, you're creating a legacy. You're creating something that doesn't exist out there and just try it for one more year. So we just kept going and kept going and kept going. And after our second year, we outgrew our, our little one-room area and we ended up moving up to Topanga. We were there for three years and then we moved to, we were able to buy a campus in Calabasas, which is where we are now. When we opened, I wanted, that was one of the things that I really wanted to do was have a garden and let the kids know where their food was coming from. And I wanted to feed them the best possible food that we could possibly feed them, which was something that I was doing at our home, which is what I thought was the best thing to do. So we had grass-fed beef, free-range chicken, cage-free eggs, all organic dairy, all of those kinds of things. And in... May of 12, Jim and I went plant-based. I watched a movie called Forks Over Knives, and then I took that and I showed it to Jim. And 24 hours later, we blew up our kitchen and we went cold turkey. And we actually had goats up at our ranch, and so we were making our own goat yogurt, goat cheese, goat milk. And 48 hours, we shut that production down. We kept the goats for a while for fire abatement, and plus they're really cute. <laughs> But it just, it all happened seriously overnight, and we never looked back. And I mean, it, we felt the effects immediately. And it was not long after that that Jim started educating me on the environmental piece. I had been in environmental circles for decades, and I had sat on the leadership council of a probably the largest 
environmental NGO in the United States. They also have offices outside the United States. No one ever said a word about it. They talked a lot about ocean acidification and biodiversity loss and deforestation and dead zones and climate change and melting glaciers and, you know, every environmental issue. And there was a moment when I was in one of those meetings after I had been learning all of this, and I envisioned this flower with animal agriculture right in the middle. And all of the petals were those things like deforestation, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, all of those things, because you can connect pretty much every environmental issue back to animal agriculture. And we were walking on the beach. I mean, Jim is kind of a doomsday kind of guy. Um, based on his films, you know, it's it's all about the end of the world and hell and all that stuff. And he does not use the word hope ever. He's got a T-shirt that says, hope is not a strategy. And we were walking along the beach about two months after we went plant-based. And he said, for the first time in my life, I have hope. And I almost fell into the surf. I just thought, and I turned to him. And he said, the more people we can get to go plant-based, the more we can move the needle on climate change. And it was in that moment that I knew as an individual, there was something I could do in the world to spread that message. So cut to you know, a year and a half later and many, many discussions, I also knew too the devastation that it creates on health as well. So not only was I at one point, you know, poisoning my family, but I was poisoning all these kids at school as well. I thought I was doing the right thing because we've all been advertised to our whole lives that you need animal products, you need meat to be have strong muscles, you need milk to have strong bones. And it's absolutely the antithesis. Not only do we not need it, but it's actually bad for you and horrendous for the environment. So we decided that we were going to take the school plant-based. It was full-on mutiny, let me tell you. So we took 18 months, though, and we had doctors come in. We had climate scientists. We had athletes. We had authors. We had chefs come in and spend the day with the children. And then at nighttime, they would do a muse talk. And Neil Barnard, who's written, I don't know how many books, probably 15 or so, he created one sheet for us to give to the parents, which is in the book, actually. And it's on the website about all the health benefits of raising a child plant-based. But it didn't matter that we did all this because we still had mutiny. We lost 50% of our families. We quickly regained our enrollment, and we've now surpassed it. And people, you know, from all over the United States have moved there. We even had a family move from out of the United States to come to the school because it's plant-based and because it's very focused on the environment and sustainability. So we have 150 raised beds. Depending on the time of year, they grow anywhere from 60% to 90% of the produce that they eat every day. They learn how to plant it, grow it, harvest it, prepare it compost it. So we are the first plant-based school in the nation. And I actually think in the world, because no one has raised their hand to say that they did it before us. And my main reason for doing this is for the environment. Because you can have good health. You can have animals that aren't being slaughtered. You can have 
a smaller waistline or a great sex life. But if we don't do something about the environment, none of that other stuff matters at all. So, you know, I just wake up every day and I think, what else can I do to make the world a better place for all of our children to grow up in? Where there is hope, using the word that my husband does use now, is in plant-based eating. When I realize that as an individual, every time I eat, every time I decide to make a plate of food, I can personally make a difference. I mean, just one person having one plant-based meal a day, changing one plant-based meal a day from a meat and dairy meal for a year will save close to 200,000 gallons of water and the equivalent, save the equivalent of carbon from driving to from Los Angeles to New York. You know, the more people that will just try just changing one meal a day to a plant-based meal will start to make a huge difference. And, you know, the people that don't believe in climate change and, you know, full transparency, half of my family in Oklahoma doesn't believe in climate change. However, they realize the benefits, the health benefits of eating plant-based. So, you know, one of my brothers, for instance, I just talked to him recently and he was talking about the book and he said to me, well, I just want you to know, I just want you to know that I'm doing one meal a day and it's really great. And I was like, well, that's great, Dave. Yeah, I feel so much better after I eat that way. Maybe I'm going to start trying too. So I was like, that's great, Dave. So again, it's one of those things where even if people, whether it's for health reasons or for fitness or for sex life or for your waistline, I don't care because the environment's going to win. Because the more that people are eating plant-based, the more the demand is lessened and the more that the supply will actually go down. So that's what drives me. That's, that's the inferno that's raging inside me every day. There we go. A timely message from Susie Cameron. Highly recommend grabbing a copy of her book, One Meal a Day. I'll pop a link into the show notes so those interested can check it out. So I mentioned in the introduction that if you stuck around to the end, we would have a a quick chat about climate change. This week, the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released a new report titled AR6, detailed inside the organization's sixth assessment report are the indisputable facts that humans, us, are unequivocally warming the planet. Sobering news described by many as code red for humanity. In just the past 50 years, the surface temperature of our planet has risen faster than any other 50-year period over the past 2,000 years. Almost as if right on cue, Sicily today recorded Europe's hottest temperature ever, 48.8 degrees Celsius or 120 degrees Fahrenheit. It's no coincidence that this unprecedented heat coincides with devastating bushfires throughout Italy, Greece, Turkey, and Spain. My heart goes out to anyone in these countries who's been affected. 
including my friends in Italy. Here's what the EU Commissioner for the Environment had to say on this. Quote, We are fighting some of the worst wildfires we've seen in decades. But this summer's floods, heat waves and forest fires can become our new normality. We must ask ourselves, is this the world we want to live in? We need immediate actions for nature before it's too late. End quote. If you've read chapter nine of my book, you'll understand why the world came together in 2015 via the Paris Agreement and set a target of limiting climate change to a global temperature of no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Sadly, this new report that came out from the IPCC this week makes it clear that not only will we not meet this target, but based on current projections, we will exceed 2 degrees Celsius this century. The only way out, the only way to stop this is to dramatically stop greenhouse gas emissions. If we don't, if we don't do this, life is going to be very different, very, very different to what we're used to. In many ways, COVID-19 appears to be a small warm-up for the real challenge that lies ahead, modifying our manner of living to preserve the health of our host, planet Earth, and at the same time, our quality of life. Now, I want to be careful to just paint a doom and gloom picture here. That's not my intention. Despite the trolls and climate denialists, the science is very clear. We aren't powerless. We have a map that we can use to guide us out of this. There are a few things we can all do to support this mission positive steps we can do to play a role in turning things around. These are not things we need to do perfectly. Billions doing them imperfectly will shift the needle. These are, number one, vote for politicians who we feel will legislate to defend the environment. So, so important. Number two, consume less. Everything we buy has an environmental impact. Where possible, reuse what you've got. Much of the time, what we have is perfectly good. It's the manipulation of our mind that makes us believe we need more. But we don't. What we need is a healthy planet. Three, eat more plants. Animal foods, particularly red meat and dairy, come at a huge environmental cost. Shifting to a more plant-based approach is crucial. The climate problem won't be solved by tackling the energy industry alone. Agriculture conservatively accounts for 25% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And our use of land is key to drawing carbon down, which cools the planet. I get it. Animal foods are a big part of our culture. Unfortunately, the writing is on the wall. We can continue to bury our heads in the sand or come to terms with the data and make some changes. Four, fly and drive less. Walk, ride, and use public transport more. 
Most of us have done this over the past few years. We've had a good taste for it now. While this isn't always easy or viable, for example, many people have to fly for work or they will lose their job, simply do what you can based on your circumstances. In many ways, taking such action means going back to basics. And in that might be the greatest lesson of all. I'll leave you with that. Thanks again for hanging out with me. Please don't be too hard on yourself about all of this climate change stuff. But at the same time, don't pretend that your actions do not matter. They absolutely do. I appreciate you and look forward to doing this all again in a few days' time when we hear from evolutionary anthropologist Herman Ponser, PhD, an episode you really do not want to miss. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.